0: Pamela spoke beautifully last night about the scope and the power of mindfulness. I find it interesting that in English, the word mindfulness doesn't really do justice to the mind state. It's kind of a... I don't know how many of you know Yiddish. <laughs> a nebbish word. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't have the power. You know, when we say wisdom, it kind of evokes depth or wisdom or emptiness and it kind of evokes something. Or we say compassion and it calls forth some kind of emotional response. But when people ask you, you know, what kind of meditation do you practice? Oh, I practice mindfulness. It sort of falls flat a little bit. But that's only the word in English. Because the mind factor, the mind quality that it is referring to, has tremendous depth, tremendous power. The Buddha said that it is this quality of mindfulness that is the direct path to awakening, the direct path to liberation. So this is not just some little insignificant thing, you know, that's being developed. This is the very heart of what frees the mind. So tonight I'd like to explore a little bit some of the specific applications of mindfulness in our practice, how we work with it with the various kinds of experience that arise. You may wonder from time to time what exactly are the insights of insight meditation, and when do they come? (laughs) Well, you've all actually had the first important insight, and perhaps it's the most important. And that is the understanding or the noticing of how often the mind wanders. Is there anybody who has not had this insight yet? (laughs) from the first time we sit as we begin to pay attention to what's happening we see this tendency of the mind to get caught by thoughts and fantasies and memories and judgments and plans and thoughts of the future thoughts of the past somehow the mind has this tremendously ingrained habit of hopping on these trains of association you know where one thought leads to the next We don't know we've hopped on the train, we don't know where the train is going, and a minute or five minutes or half an hour later, it's like we're deposited in some other station. And this is what's happening again and again and again. Another image which has come to my mind regarding this, it's it's like going to a movie theater where they change the film every minute and a half. (laughs) You know, would you pay ten bucks to (laughs) go? And yet this is our mind. You know, this is what our minds are doing. So the first step on this meditative journey, on this meditative path, is the work we need to do to calm the mind and collect the attention. Based on this first insight of, of how often our mind wanders and gets lost, So it's clear the first step is what can we do to collect the attention, to calm the mind, to steady it. So as you know, we do this by giving the mind some primary object of attention, something very simple like the breath or like the movement of a step. And we just keep coming back to it. We train the mind to be steady on that very simple object. The breath is not complicated. You know, it's not like we're saying, well, visualize this mandala with 10,000 deities in different colors and different postures. That would be a challenge. But in, out, <laughs> in, out, <laughs> it's pretty simple. And yet we see, even with it being so simple, how difficult it is. So this training of the attention has two important aspects. And if we understand these two aspects, we find that it very much enhances our ability to concentrate, to stay steady, to stay stable. And we've talked about it some in these last couple of days. The two aspects are aiming the mind and sustaining the attention. It's these two qualities that are the basis, the foundation, of a concentrated mind. So what does aiming the mind mean? You know, and how can we do it? If we sit or walk and simply hope or even have an initial intention to be with a breath or be with a step. How long does that last? Probably about three and a half seconds. It's not enough. It's not enough to hope that it's going to land on the object, and it's not enough even to have an initial intention to be with the object. We need to be continually aiming, continually re-aiming towards the object of our attention. Why? Because there's a meditative equivalent to the second law of thermodynamics. Now, I'm not a scientist, so I may get this wrong. <laughs> and I'll probably get a lot of notes t- tomorrow if <laughs> you really mess this up. <laughs> but in my limited understanding, very limited, the second law of thermodynamics says that in a system, Things tend to disorder. Like, given a system, it's going to go to disorder. Why? Because the possibilities for things being disordered are much greater than they're being ordered. And I was reading this book, it was some science book, uh, which I read in between all the spy novels. <laughs> and the, the example they gave, it was kind of just a you know, very ordinary example for this law of things tending to disorder, said if you had an unbound copy of War and Peace you know, and threw it up in the air, what is the likelihood that it would come down <laughs> in perfect sequence? Very small, because the possibilities for it being out of sequence are so much greater. So there's a meditative equivalent of this There are so many more possibilities for where the mind can land than the breath. It's this tendency of the mind to be dispersed. Because there are many more possibilities for it to be dispersed. It takes a certain quality of energy. It takes a certain quality of intentionality to order the attention. And that's what right aiming does. Now, out of all of the possibilities of where our mind might land, we're saying, we want it to land here. And so we aim the mind to the chosen object of meditation. What's important to understand about this in terms of a meditation practice is that it's not enough to do this once. We need to do it with each breath. We need to do it with each half-breath. You breathe in, begin by aiming the mind towards the beginning of the in-breath. You stop breathing out, aim the mind towards the beginning of the out-breath. If you have this intentionality, you will see that it is much more likely that that's where the mind actually goes. Without it, it's anybody's guess where the mind is gonna go, as we have seen. What's amazing about practicing in this way is that I think you will find that it brings very immediate results. This is not something you need to practice and then in 15 years, oh, yeah, this really works. I think you will find that as soon as you begin practicing in this way, you'll see, yes, I actually can aim the mind. I can direct the intention, I can have it connect with the breath, with a step. And so there's a feeling of tremendous confidence. It's like, oh, yeah. We can train the mind. I can do this. So I would like to encourage you, the reason I'm going on and on about this is because for about 20 years I heard Upandita talk about right aim. It was only in this last six-week retreat that I thought, let me try it. And lo and behold, (laughs) it worked. (laughs) So rather than for you to wait 20 years to make the experiment, I'm just trying to encourage you really do it. I think you'll see a very immediate effect in your practice. Aiming and re-aiming with each half-breath, with each step, with each part of the step. The second aspect of concentration, the first is the aiming, so we actually connect with the chosen object. The second is sustaining the attention for the duration, the very short duration of that object. So we connect and then sustain just for half a breath, re-aim. Sustain it for the out-breath, re-aim, sustain, re-aim, sustain. The same in the walking, the same with any movement. If you do this, and it's not hard to do, it's just remembering, it's just doing it, I think you will find a noticeable and appreciable increase in the depth and stability of your concentration. And as the Buddha said very often, it's out of a more concentrated mind that wisdom arises. So this is a very important foundation for the whole unfolding path. As we practice in this way, you know, as we actually do it, what we find is that the mind does begin to settle down. The mind does begin to experience some calm, some inner tranquility. And it's not that thoughts are completely gone. Thoughts may still come, but they're not quite so loud. They're not quite so demanding. We don't get caught up in them quite so completely. There's really a sense of inner relief. You now we find some space within ourselves. From this place of greater calm, Greater inner peace, even to some extent. What happens, and you've already experienced this as well, we begin to have a much more immediate and direct experience of the body. We begin to feel our bodies in very different ways. You know, we might feel places of tightness or tension or pressure or heat or vibration or pulsing, heaviness, whatever. You now we feel, we might feel places of tension in the body that we didn't even know we were carrying. Very common for people on retreat, and I experienced this myself as well on, on this last sit. You know, the first days, even the first weeks, kind of sitting down, and I was just feeling all this tension in my neck and shoulders and jaw, just the accumulated tension of living, which in our normal lives, we distract ourselves from feeling. So, you come to retreat, get quiet, calm the mind, and all of a sudden, all of this begins to show itself, to reveal itself. Sometimes people get discouraged by this, you know, because we have some idea oh, meditation should feel good. And how many of you assess a sitting? by whether the feelings have been pleasant or unpleasant. You know, if you sit and things, things are smooth and light and easy, oh, that was a good sitting. And if you come in and you sit and there's a lot of pain and a lot of tension and a lot of uncomfortable sensations, oh, that was a really bad sitting. This is a common evaluation that we lay on the meditation, which is completely and totally and 100% inaccurate the value of a sitting has absolutely nothing to do with whether we're experiencing pleasant things or unpleasant things and in fact an deepening of our practice is when we can begin to feel all the levels of tension and discomfort and pain that is there but normally we don't feel because we're not paying attention so we need to kind of readjust our thinking, our understanding of what the meditation practice is about. As we focus more on the actual sensations that we're feeling, this opens the doorway to a level shift, which we've talked about in some of the questions and answers, but I want to reiterate because it is so crucial in The deepening of our practice. And that is, we make this level shift going from the level of concepts about things to the level of direct experience. And it's these sensations in the body which can help us do that so effectively. You know, in the beginning, as we've said, it's so easy to interpret our experience through the veil of concepts. My back hurts, my knees hurt, whatever. Back, knee, even body is a concept. There's no sensation called back. We don't feel back. Back is an idea. Back is a word describing a certain image we have of the body. What we feel are the particular elements, the sensations which I've mentioned and we've talked about. You know, the pressure, the tightness, the tingling, the vibration, whatever. There are a lot of different sensations. The reason this is so important, and again, I think we've mentioned this before, but the reason it's so important to make this shift is because it opens the doorway to the insights really the wisdom insights of this practice, and that is the direct seeing of the impermanent, unreliable, selfless nature of experience. When we're on the level of concept, the concepts don't change. Back today, back tomorrow, back next year. And not only back, concept of I, concept of self, concept of Joseph, the concepts solidify our view of the world. The concept solidifies the view of ourself. When we drop down from the level of concept to the elemental level, it's there that we see the momentariness. Everything is in constant flux and flow. The body is not some solid thing. It's an energy field of constantly changing sensations And our practice, this practice of mindfulness, brings us right into that realm. You know, it's like looking at a familiar object through a high-power microscope. Our conventional view of what that object is completely falls away. And all of a sudden, we have this other view of what is really going on. And so you could think of meditation as the focusing of the microscope of our minds looking inward, leaving the the realm of concept to the realm of the direct experience. As we do this, particularly with respect to the body, not only do we get past the illusion of solidity and begin to feel the fluid energetic nature, it's also tremendously healing because we haven't fixed it. You know, we're not solidifying it. And there's a tremendous unwinding that takes place. You know, We sit and we may feel the tension, we may feel the tightness, but if we can create the space of awareness where we're just allowing not reacting, not pushing away, not judging, oh, this is a terrible sitting. We are just allowing ourselves to feel it. What happens is that this whole energy system unwinds all of those places of tension. It releases a lot of old traumas to the body. I'll just give you one, this is just a very small example, but I think it illustrates an aspect of this healing healing nature of the practice. Years ago, when I was on retreat, I was doing some walking meditation, and just all of a sudden, I felt this excruciating pain in my leg. It felt like my shin bone was extruding from the skin. It felt like my bone had broken and was sticking out. That's how sharp the pain was. So I kind of looked down to check, you know, what's going on here. And just in that moment, an image came to the mind, and I remembered being about eight years old, running across a field flying a kite, and running smack into a cement bench right at that point. You know, well, I hadn't thought of this, you know, maybe in 40 years, but just in doing the walking meditation, I'd been practicing you know, probably for a month or two at that time. And it's like the mind dropped to that level where that trauma was being held. It had been held in the body all that time. And as I got there and opened to it and felt it, and then the whole thing released. So this happens a lot. You know, there's this, there's this opening to what we're carrying and the letting go of it. Sometimes I think that the word enlightenment, which is really the aspiration or the goal of this whole path, really means just getting lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. (laughs) It's like letting go of all the stuff we're carrying until we let go of everything. Paying attention, being mindful, aiming and sustaining the attention on the different physical sensations also begins to reveal to us many of the strategies we've developed over the course of our lifetimes for dealing with discomfort. (coughs) There are very few people who are naturally inclined to open to pain. You know, mostly we've been conditioned. Discomfort, we don't like it. We don't like to feel it. And so we've all evolved different ways of not feeling it. It might be fear. You know, have you noticed times when you're sitting and you begin to have a little pain and the thought comes, oh no, a half an hour of this. I'll never be able to bear it. You know, and there's fear of the anticipated pain. And so we pull back. Maybe it's self pity. You know, oh, you know, the thought everybody else is in bliss and then only me is, you know, feeling all this discomfort and we can get caught in that vortex. Maybe our strategy for dealing with discomfort is avoidance or denial. Maybe it's just frustration or impatience, irritation one point in my time in India, this goes back many years, I was living in this little hut in Bodh Gaya. it was at the Burmese, called vihara, or a dwelling place, uh, where a lot of the Westerners were staying, and I just had a little hut about six feet by seven feet, and so it was, it was pretty small, and that's where we, I was living in, and it didn't have a door, it just had a kind of canvas flap. So I would be sitting a lot in this little hut on my bed. And one day I was sitting, and this cat wandered in and plopped down on my lap. And I'm kind of more of a dog guy than a cat guy. <laughs> you know. And anyway, I was meditating. <laughs> so I kind of you know tossed the cat out about Ten seconds later, the cat was back in, <laughs> sitting on my lap. Tossed it out again. So we had this little dance going on for about 20 minutes. You know, I tossed it out, it would come back, I tossed it out. But there was nothing I could do because it was just a canvas flap. There was no door to close. <laughs> so after about 20 minutes of this, I just surrendered to it. There's nothing I can do. So the cat came in, it sat down on my lap. I didn't do anything. I just okay, just sat there. Within about 20 seconds, the cat got up, walked out the door. It was such a lesson in how resistance feeds the very thing we're resisting. And I've seen this so often. I mean, that's a little example. I've seen it so often in meditation. The degree to which we resist discomfort or pain or tension or whatever the uncomfortable sensation may be, The resistance itself is locking it in, so this is an important lesson. Our strategy is not serving us. It's not bringing about the desired result. It's actually increasing the difficulty. And So in working with the uncomfortable sensations, which will inevitably come up at certain times in the practice we need to learn a different strategy. And this is the great, I'd say gift or understanding of meditation practice. That is, we learn to let things in rather than keep them out. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, can we open to it? Can we feel it? Can we allow it? And in that allowing, we begin to see its impermanent, changing, impersonal nature. There's one other thing I want to say about these uncomfortable feelings that may come. There's a very interesting meditative experience that can happen. And so I just want to alert you to the possibility because it's easily overlooked. And that is, it's very possible to have an unpleasant physical sensation and a pleasant mind state which is aware of it. Because when we're concentrated on that unpleasant sensation, when the mind is not reactive, it can be clear, the mind can be clear, steady, open, balanced, equanimous, concentrated, all of which bring about quite pleasant mental feelings. And so even in the moment of feeling the discomfort, if, if we're being mindful in the full sense of that word, pay attention to the feeling in the mind. And see that it's not always the same as the feeling associated with the sensation. Do you follow? It's very. But but usually we don't do that because the physical sensation is so predominant. It's like all of our attention is just on that, and we're not turning back to really seeing. Well, what's the feeling in the mind now? At one time in Bodh Gaya, I was just, you know, in the the local bazaar and uh, having a cup of tea, and Munindra comes along. And on that particular day, I had a bad headache. And Munindraji comes along, and we sit down. He asks how I'm doing, and I say, you know, I have this really bad headache. And all he said was, oh, I hope you are enjoying it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what he was talking about, although at the time, I had no idea what he was talking about. (laughs) But I've come to appreciate. You know, and so just be aware of that. As we calm the mind, collect the attention on the primary object, on the breath or the walking, and as we practice aiming and re aiming and sustaining, mind gets more calm, collected, we begin to open to the body, the full range of pleasant and unpleasant in all of these ways. So these these steps are quite tangible. Based on this, we then begin to open to and have a much greater sensitivity to the more subtle aspects of what is arising, what is happening in our minds. We begin to become much more aware of the thoughts and emotions that arise in our experience. we see more clearly so many of the conditioned habit patterns of thought you know the conditioned tendencies of our thought process we see our likes and our dislikes and our judgments you know our desires our fears we begin to see this ongoing inner commentary about almost everything you now when you're standing in line for lunch you have any little flitting judgments about the people in front of you or back of you or coming down the hill? You know, people you might not even know, but it doesn't stop the mind from having little judgment <coughs> or self-judgment. I mean, sometimes that's even more prevalent. Somebody asked this morning about how to practice doing the uh, work meditation during the yoga jobs. In addition to what Steve mentioned, in terms of just being in the body and watching the activity, I found it really helpful to watch the mind. On this last retreat that I did, my yogi job was veggie chopper. You know, so I was in the kitchen, along with one other yogi uh, chopping vegetables for lunch. And on this one particular day, the cooks had given us eggplant to slice. So I was kind of slicing the eggplant, and the slices weren't exactly coming out as if it were a five-star Michelin <laughs> French restaurant. The slices were pretty uneven, you know thin slices and fat slices. But I you know put them in the pan and I gave them to the cook. But I felt a little boy oh, you weren't that careful with this. And then I'm waiting, you know, for it to be served for lunch. And they didn't serve it. They didn't, there, was, there was no eggplant dish. So then I thought, well, they'll probably serve it tomorrow. And they didn't serve it the next day. Or the next day. So my mind said, they didn't like my slices. <laughs> you know, it just looked too bad, and they just kind of threw it all out. And so my mind went on this whole trip. <laughs> about this, finally I had to ask, "Look, what happened to the eggplant?" <laughs> it turns out that they had prepared this dish and froze it for you know some future time. But it was just very instructive, and amu- it was fortunately amusing. <laughs> but it was instructive just to see how the mind will do anything, you know. And sometimes it is in activities, you know, like our yogi jobs that we can really watch some of these deeply ingrained patterns. What becomes very obvious in the course of meditation is that we are not inviting all these thoughts. You know, you're not sitting here and say, oh yeah, thoughts come, judgments come. No, you're sitting and, you know, making an effort to be with the breath or the body. But the thoughts just arise. Our practice is about seeing very clearly a critical distinction with respect to thoughts. The thoughts are going to come, sometimes more, sometimes less. The critical distinction that we need to be very alert to is seeing the difference in our experience between being lost in thought and being aware that we're thinking. It's not about whether the thoughts are there or not. It's about whether we're lost in them or whether we're aware that the thought is there. That is our practice. You know, it's like being in a movie theater and being totally absorbed in the story and caught up and emotional about what's happening. And then the movie's over and you walk outside. And you know that moment of, pshh, oh, all of that was just the movie. It's that like the reality shift. Well, our practice, mindfulness, is about emerging from the movies of our minds, which are going on so often. Something else that is very interesting to do with respect to thought, not only being very attentive to this question of whether we're lost in the thought or aware of it, something else that's very interesting to do and very few people do it, is to investigate the very nature of thought. Not the content, not what it's saying, but it's as if you are holding the question, what is a thought, what is it as a phenomenon? You know, here's this, here's this function of mind that happens, I don't know, 10,000 times a day, I, you know, some huge number of times a day, which actually exerts tremendous influence on our lives. And yet, we don't stop to pay attention or to look or to investigate, well, what is this? You know, what, what is going on here? And what's so interesting and we can all discover this for ourselves. It's just, there's no shortage of thoughts (laughs) with which to investigate. (laughs) You know, they're coming all the time, but can we bring this investigative interest? The thought comes, what is it? And when we look, it's so amazing because we see that the thought itself is little more than nothing. You know, it's just this little, I don't know, I call it an energy blip. You know, it's just just something very quick, very ephemeral, very insubstantial. And yet when they're unnoticed, they're like little dictators in the mind. You know, our thoughts are just dictating to us. Do this, do that, go here, go there. You know, and sometimes they're wise and sometimes they're really not wise at all. And so to use the practice, to use the power of mindfulness to actually see for ourselves the empty nature of thought, this is tremendously liberating. I'd like to read something from one of the great Tibetan masters of the last century, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. He said, thoughts that arise in the mind have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be so enslaved by them. Once we recognizing, recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly as they have been doing throughout countless past lives. I mean, that's such a clear and direct statement about the nature, the empty nature of thought. It doesn't take a lot to see this. It just takes the interest in looking directly at the thought and not being so caught in the story, in the content. But as we know, the stories, the content is very seductive. We get caught again and again and again. One thing you can do in your practice that will enhance your ability to be aware of thought and to penetrate into its empty nature is to take a moment, whenever it is that you awaken from being lost. And sometimes it might be right at the beginning. You know, when the mind is clear, sometimes we're aware of a thought just as it arises. More frequently, we become aware in the middle. You know, we're, we're really lost in it for a while, and then sometime in the middle. Oh, I've been thinking. Sometimes the thought is already over. It's already finished, and then we remember, oh, I was thinking. At whatever point, we awaken from being lost. Take that moment, and instead of rushing back to the breath, or a step, or a sensation, take a moment to acknowledge what just happened. Acknowledge the experience of being lost and awakening. being lost. So you recognize the difference in those two experiences and you begin to get a direct taste of what the quality of wakefulness is about. It's very vivid in that moment because we've actually just come out of being asleep. We've just come out of being lost and so the contrast With now being wakeful, it's so clear, it's so vivid. And the more familiar we become with the wakeful state, the more we learn to recognize it and become familiar with it, the easier it is to access it and to rest in it. What's so interesting is that all of the thoughts that are arising are giving us this opportunity, but mostly we don't do this. What do we mostly do? We come out from being lost, and mostly we'll have a self-judgment. Oh, there I was, lost again. <laughs> Instead of delighting in the fact of being wakeful, we just get lost again in the self-judgment. So watch this. You know, Really, really work with what's happening. You're with the breath, you're with sensations, thoughts come. What happens in that moment that you become aware that you're thinking? That's a very uh, important moment. So we train the mindfulness to right aim and sustaining on the breath. We open to the body, the full range of the body sensations, pleasant and unpleasant. Noticing all the strategies we have for avoiding the unpleasant. We pay attention to thoughts in the mind, seeing all the various patterns that arise, seeing into the nature of thought, recognizing that moment of wakefulness when we emerge from it. In this meditative journey, we are also opening to the full range of our emotions. You know, that very powerful constellation of thought and feeling and sensation and mind state. Emotion is not a simple thing. Emotion is a complex constellation of different elements of experience. You know, we feel it in the body, we feel it in the mind in different ways. So our practice is to learn how to be with emotion without drowning in them, without getting so lost in them, without becoming so identified with them? Can we be with emotion in the same way that we're with a sound? You know, you're sitting here in a sound, even if it's unpleasant, it's probably not that hard just to sit and let the sound come and go, and we, f- we hear it. We're totally there in the experience, but probably we're not particularly reactive or particularly identified with it. It's possible to be with emotion in just the same way, where we're with the experience. We're not pushing it away. We're not denying it. We're totally feeling it, but without reactivity, without identification with it. This is a huge challenge. This is not easy to do, because for most of us, emotions are what we most personalize. And even with thoughts, even though we get lost a lot, it's not that hard to see how they just come and go. But when a strong emotion comes, usually we get pretty caught. You know, this is me. This is who I am. What's so amazing, it's so easy to create a self-story in the emotion. It's like we build a superstructure of self on top of the emotion and then we get imprisoned in this story, in this sense of self. One point in my practice, uh, this was earlier on, I went through a period, a long period, this was over several years, where the most predominant emotion that was arising for me was fear, and I was just experiencing fear in so many ways, in so many dimensions. And sometimes it was about little things; sometimes it was primal fear. Yeah, you know, it just—it wasn't about anything, but just that raw emotion. It was quite paralyzing, actually. There were times when I was—I was simply afraid to move. You know, that's how strong that emotion was. So I was working on it in a lot of different ways and had you know, different moments where it really opened up. But I remember at one time I was teaching a course with Sharon down in Texas, and I was kind of in the middle of this period. We were going for a walk after lunch, and I started going on and on about all my fear. and then, oh, I have so much fear, and you know, I'm such a fearful person, and it's going to take me 30 years of therapy to unwind all this fear and to understand why it's there. And I was just... Building a whole story. And she turned to me and said something which I had said and continue to say many, many times. But you know, sometimes somebody says something and it's just the right moment. Well, she turned to me and she said, Joseph, it's just a mind state. And it's like, right, it's just a mind state. It's something arising out of certain conditions, is there for some time, and passes away but I was solidifying this in who I was. You know, I was creating my whole identity as being this fearful person. That's a prison for us. If we can really bring our mindfulness to a clear understanding of emotion and see how it's arising out of conditions, an image which, I don't know, do you get do you get real thunder, lightning storms out here? In the East Coast in the summer, you get these great storms. You know, it's like the sky darkens and the wind starts to blow, and there's thunder and there's lightning, there can be this huge downpour of rain, and it's it's a real elemental experience. And then it all passes, the conditions change, the storm passes, and maybe there's you know a rainbow in the clear sky. Well, emotions are kind of like that. You know, conditions come together and the emotion arises out of the conditions if we can be with it, if we can just be with it and not personalize it. So then we feel it. We feel the energy of it. And we let it pass through. We let it wash through. And we come out into the clear sky of our minds. So this is part of our practice. Because otherwise we stay bound, we stay caught up in these very uh, conditioned responses. One way of deepening our understanding of the selfless, conditioned nature of emotion is by actually seeing the condition which produces it. And of course there are many, but one one very uh, precise and not difficult place to look is to notice, in many cases, the relationship of thought to emotion. I've seen many times, I'll be going along quite happily, a certain thought will arise, And if I'm not really mindful of that thought, that thought can trigger a whole emotional state. It might trigger anger, it might trigger fear, it might trigger greed. It's very instructive, just, oh, that was just a thought, and the thought triggered this whole biochemical reaction, you know, it's like this flood of whatever happens, you know, when we're feeling a strong emotion. It's just conditioned by an unnoticed thought. That's all. Especially if there are certain emotional patterns that catch you again and again, see if you can notice the trigger point. See if you can notice what triggers the emotion and keep your radar out for that because if you're mindful of the trigger, you might not have to go down that whole avenue. So that's one way of working with emotion. Another way is understanding that what we feel emotionally is very conditioned by our level of understanding. And what might make one person very upset might leave another quite calm and at ease. So I'll just give you an example. There's this wonderful haiku poem. The barn, the barn's burnt down. Now I can see the moon. Okay, imagine going home. My house has burnt down. (laughs) Now I can see the moon. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) But at a certain level of understanding, a certain freedom from attachment, it might be just that. Why is all this important? Why is it important to be so mindful of thought and emotion in this way? Because very often it's not that we're simply lost in ourselves, you know, daydreaming in thought or caught up in some private little emotional drama. Very often we are acting these out in one way or another. You know, when we look around in the world to all the very many places of great suffering in the world, what is happening in a large number of those cases? You know, where there's war, there's violence, there's injustice, there's exploitation. What's happening is that people are acting out thoughts and feelings of greed, of fear, of hatred, of anger. That's the cause of that suffering. And I think it's important for us to realize that it's not simply happening out there. It's happening within us. And so our meditation offers us the possibility of actually seeing this clearly. So we're not simply living our lives acting out the habit patterns of our conditioning. Now we actually find a place of clarity and openness and awareness and freedom through the power of mindfulness, through this great power of mindfulness, where we know what's arising and we're able to make wise choices. Now Thich Nhat Hanh, in his wonderful way, he said, happiness is available, please help yourselves to it. <laughs> well, how do we help ourselves to it? We do that by seeing clearly what's arising and bringing wisdom to the choices we make in our lives. The Buddha said in the first verse of the Dhammapada, "You know, when we think or act with a pure mind, motivated by wholesome states, happiness follows us like our shadow which never leaves." So this is the great power of this very innocuous word, mindfulness. Mindfulness opens all of this up. It becomes the basis for the development of concentration. You know, as we aim and re-aim the mind and steady the attention, mindfulness is the basis of opening to our bodies, where we go past the concepts to the understanding of it as an energy field. Mindfulness shows us all our conditioned strategies for dealing with discomfort that are often not helpful. Mindfulness allows us to open to that, to free us in the experience of it. It opens us to the understanding of thought and what a thought is. Mindfulness allows us to be with emotions without drowning in them, without identifying with them. Also, in this, maybe we'll, we'll... be the topic of another talk, mindfulness, in the end, opens us to the very nature of awareness itself. What is this mystery of awareness, this mystery of consciousness? What is it that's knowing all of these things? It's so amazing, when you look for awareness, there's nothing to find. Oh, there it is. There's nothing tangible to find. And yet this cognizing power of the mind, this knowing power, this, could call it this innate wakefulness or innate awareness of mind, is always there. So as our mind settles, and as we get quieter and more concentrated, and the mindfulness gets stronger, we begin to explore this mystery of awareness itself. I'd like to close with just, I think, a beautiful teaching by one of the great monks of Thailand, forest monks. His name is Ajahn Mahabua, and he's reputedly uh, an Orhant, you know, a fully enlightened being. Um, his wonderful teachings, you know, that just, that just go to the heart of things, And I think this is just a good reminder for us all. He said of the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world, so be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize the Dhamma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding the Dhamma. Once the mind is known, then the Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbana. Clearly the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked." And so this is our practice developing the tools, the ability to investigate, to explore, to understand this most priceless treasure of all lives. Let's sit for a few minutes. And don't forget, aim the mind (laughs) for just half a breath.